The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, all right. Good morning, church. Good to see you all. Hey, guess what I did? I turned up the heat. So we're going to need you to give a little bit of extra money uh, in that year-end giving fund. Just, just another, another push. Hey, uh, it's good to, good to be with you this morning. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. If I didn't get a chance to meet you on the way in, welcome to our online friends and family. We love you guys as well. Hope you're doing well. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and open them up to Ephesians chapter 5? Uh, Ephesians 5 is where we're going to be. Open a phone or a tablet if you prefer. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. Uh, we are not verses on screen type people here, and so uh, grab a hold of that. If you grab that black Bible, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 is on page 978, but Ephesians 5 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, As you're meeting me in Ephesians 5, here's the question I want to address. Uh, Is it appropriate for Christians to drink alcohol? I see a lot of yeses, okay, (laughs) which is a problem, all right? I just... uh... Hey, um, this, by the way, this is a debated topic. If, you, if you're newer maybe to, to the faith, if you're newer to Christianity, this is a debated topic. Um, it's very clear though, let me just say it right off the bat, it is very clear in the Bible that alcohol is not prohibited for the Christian. It is also very clear in the Bible that getting drunk or drunkenness is prohibited, Okay. So we've got to take both of those in stride, all right? Drunkenness actually in the scriptures is the cause of some of the worst moments in our history in the Bible, okay? I'll give you a few. Uh, In Genesis chapter nine, we find the story of Noah. You know about Noah? He's got a big boat, okay? Noah, after he gets off of the ark and the animals, you know, two by two go scatter and start multiplying, the text says, Genesis chapter nine says that Noah planted a vineyard. First thing he did, He gets off the ark. First thing he does, he planted a vineyard. It says he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Everybody read that one? Genesis 9. That's who's repopulating the earth. Okay, drunk and naked Noah. That's what's going on in Genesis 9, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find a famous story, David and Bathsheba, okay? You know this story? Uh, David is trying to cover up his tracks in, uh, in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 11 because he has slept with Bathsheba. She is not his wife. He, he, she becomes pregnant. He's trying to cover his tracks, and so he gets Bathsheba's husband, a guy named Uriah, to come back from the battlefield. He's out fighting the, the king's battles. He calls him back. And the text reads this, David invited Uriah to eat and drink so that he made him drunk. And this was all in hopes that Uriah would then go home being a little bit drunk, sleep with his wife, and David would be off the hook for an illegitimate pregnancy. Seriously, that's that's how the text reads. Uriah obviously didn't go, and so David ended up having him killed. King David, the man after God's own heart, okay? That's a whole nother sermon. 
Lot's uh, daughters in Genesis 19 is maybe the most heinous in the Bible of a story of drunkenness. Um, Lot is, uh, is Abraham's nephew, and they are uh, he and his wife and their daughters are living in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, which, uh, you know, those two towns are known for their, um, well, they're nefarious, okay? Uh, and, and so after escaping from Sodom and Gomorrah, God blasts that place. They realize, uh, the daughters of Lot realize they have no children, they have no heirs, uh, and so so this is what they said. I'm, I'm reading you directly from the scriptures, okay? Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. And so the text says that both girls get their father drunk on consecutive nights and are both then impregnated by their dad. Still think the Bible's boring? Still think this is safe for the whole family? Right? You'll think twice before letting your kids listen to the Bible at this point. Okay, Genesis is sketchy, all right? I actually do know uh, in the, this whole alcohol conversation, I know another pastor, uh, and he says that drinking beer is fine. It's acceptable. It's okay to drink beer, but drinking light beer is a sin. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, take that as you will. I, I don't have a verse and chapter on that one, but um, I bring all this up. I bring this drinking thing up because... Today in Ephesians chapter 5, we find one of the key verses in the text concerning drunkenness. It's one of the key verses that people point to about drunkenness. But if we only take this to mean don't get drunk, we will miss out on what Paul's actually trying to talk about here. We'll miss out on what Paul's really driving at. So that's my setup for Ephesians chapter five. It was already read over us, but let's dig into this together. We're gonna pick up in verse 15. That's where we left off last week. Ephesians five, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So to bring you into context here, what Paul has been talking about for the last couple chapters, and he's been going off on this, is, is how Christian behavior should look, what Christians should do. He has been comparing and contrasting the way that we behaved before Christ saved us. He calls that the living the way of the Gentiles, and then he's also started comparing that to how we ought to behave now that we are in Christ. So here's a few of the things that he said. He said, hey, put off your old self. Put off the old self and put on the new. Wear the new clothes of Christianity. He said things like this. At one time, you were darkness. Not just you were in darkness. At one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So he says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. He's talking about the, the, the comparison of what it was like for you before Christ and what it is like now in Christ. And he continued in those verses that we just read by saying, don't be unwise, but rather be wise. Don't be foolish, but rather begin to understand, gain some understanding and so what I want you to know is that those verses kind of set up what I think is the key to this little section, and that key to what Paul is trying to communicate to us is verse 18, because he's going to contrast the old way and the new way once again, but he's going he's to contrast it by saying, don't get drunk on wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. So here we go, verse 18. This is the verse that we're going to spend a lot of time in this morning. Do not... Get drunk with wine, 
for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, just so we're clear, if you don't know anything about the Bible, that's a really strange thing to thrust in the middle of a teaching text on how Christians should behave. It's just a strange thing. Paul is going off on all these ways that you shouldn't behave and all these ways that you should behave. And he says, hey, don't get drunk on wine. Get drunk on the spirit. Like he compares drinking alcohol to being filled with God's spirit. I mean, it's a strange comparison. Now, I just think as we dig into this, we need to ask the question first, why, like what's so tempting about wine? Why would people even want to get drunk on wine? Wine. Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Let me just give you a few. Sometimes people get drunk. They drink too much alcohol um, because to borrow like a a drinking term, a term from the bar, uh, they want a happy hour, right? They, they, They drink because it makes them feel happy. Some people do it that way. Uh, Some other people get drunk. Um, They drink a lot of alcohol because they want to maybe decompress from stress, come home from a long day of work. I just need a drink. First of all, if you need a drink, that's maybe a problem. But I just, you know, to decompress, to numb out the realities of life or pain, to make whatever is gnawing at their hearts just kind of go away for a little bit. There's another reason why people drink. Thirdly, another another reason why people get drunk is maybe they just don't like their personality when they're not drunk. I mean, I think we've all known somebody at some point who drinks more and they they change their personality. Maybe they're more reserved and quiet and then they get a couple in them and they just go crazy. And they just like that crazy version of themselves more than they like their more reserved version of themselves. So so they drink to change their personality. There's there's countless others, I'm sure, but, but those things are, let me just say, those reasons why people get drunk, all of those things are true because, because drinking can make you happy, okay? And drinking can numb out your feelings. It does a really good job at that. And drinking can alter your personality, okay? But the text, what Paul just said is, hey, don't, don't, don't pursue those things in alcohol because the result is only going to last for a few hours and it'll only bring about greater pain on the other side of that drunkenness. He says, instead, be, be filled by the Spirit. And, I, and I'm, I'm adding to his words here, but I would say, because the Spirit can do those same things, but they can actually lead to the fullness of joy. The Spirit can make you happy or joyful. The Spirit can help you with your stress and decompressing from your hard life. And the Spirit actually can alter your personality to become who you really want to be. But it does it without any of the, quote, hangovers that come with alcohol. So this is one of the weirdest comparisons in Scripture, y'all. Get drunk, not with booze, but get drunk with the spirit, get filled with the spirit. And so listen, if we're not careful, we can just kind of say, okay, this is a reason why I shouldn't drink. Here it is. Paul says, don't drink. And we can make this whole passage about drunkenness. And this will be our don't get drunk passage. We'll preach this at youth group and tell the kids don't get drunk. Preach this at men's group and tell the men don't get drunk. Preach this at wine night and say, only have one glass. All right, don't get drunk. Okay. Like we can preach that, but this is not Paul's main point. 
His main point is not don't get drunk, though that is his point. But his main point is not don't get drunk. His main point is this, be filled. Be filled. This text is less about wine and and more about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So, if we're not talking necessarily about boozing in this sermon, what does it mean then to be filled? What, was it, what does it mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to do a little back work. Okay, so, um, so what I want to do just for a few minutes is I want to do a little history lesson and a little theology lesson uh, so that we can understand what Paul is actually doing here. So this might feel a little boring, but I just need you to buckle up and hang in there with me, okay? Because this will actually pay off if we spend our time looking at this. So let's start with history. In 1901... In 1901, there was a movement that kind of rose up in uh, Protestant American Christianity called the Pentecostal Revival. The Pentecostal Revival. So you may have heard of Pentecostal churches, okay? Uh, This is kind of the birthplace of that movement in America. And uh, later in our history, later in American history, there was this offshoot of the Pentecostal uh, Revival that became more widespread in the 1960s and the 1970s around kind of the Jesus people, the Jesus movement, which is more generally called the Charismatic Movement, So you kind of have this Pentecostal churches that show up in the early century and then mid to to second, third of the century, you find these charismatic churches start showing up. But in both movements, there was a distinct theology known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, And for the last 50 years or so, this doctrine has become wildly popular worldwide. I mean, this doctrine, charismatic and Pentecostal doctrine around the the baptism of the Holy Spirit has gone like wildfires all over our globe. It's some of the fastest growing churches in the world are Pentecostal or charismatic churches that believe in this doctrine. So theology now, the history is that's where it came from. The theology is what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? This is a doctrine that these churches hold to. Well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is traditionally understood like this. After a person is converted to Christ, that is, after they are saved, okay, after they surrender their life to Jesus, after they become a Christian, okay, after that, at some point after conversion, that person will have a second experience, second experience, or sometimes it's called a second blessing, or they would call it a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this second experience is described to make kind of uh, prayer and Bible study more effective. People who who have had these experiences will say that they have like a newfound joy in worship. They will even sometimes receive new spiritual gifts, most frequently the gift of speaking in tongues. Okay, so that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this, just need you to know, is not the traditional Christian view of how the Spirit works. Okay, the traditional Christian view is that a person is completely filled with the Holy Spirit at their conversion. 
not at some point after their conversion. And if, you, if you're bored out of your mind, trust me, this is really important because we're going to get to why in just a moment. But um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, people would be like, okay, so do they have any biblical proof as to this doctrine? Normally doctrines don't just show up like 100 years ago after like 2,000 years of doctrine kind of being around. So where do they find this in the Bible? Well, um, there is one passage where this kind of originates primarily, and it's Acts chapter 19. Now, these verses I will put up on the screen, but Acts chapter 19, let's look at this together because I think this is really helpful. Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, who wrote Ephesians, okay, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So he's coming to the city that we are reading this letter to at Ephesus. And there Paul found some disciples, verse two, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Verse three, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So what they're talking about there is John the Baptist, into John's baptism, John the Baptist. These disciples, is what the text said, were baptized in John's baptism. Now, in Mark chapter one, we find what John said, John the Baptist said about what he was doing when he was baptizing. And this is what he said. I have baptized you with water, but he, referring to the Messiah, referring to the Christ, referring to Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John even said that his baptism wasn't enough. John's baptism wasn't enough. And Paul will go on back to Acts 19 to explain that much. Look at Acts 19, verse four. Paul then says to them saying, hey, we've been baptized in John's baptism. Paul says, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So Paul says that John's baptism what was a baptism of repentance, not a baptism of salvation. This is a big difference. This is very important. Verse five, on hearing this, those disciples were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Okay, Acts 19. This is... What has happened here, these Ephesian disciples had not been baptized in the name of Jesus. They had been baptized in John's baptism. They had repented of their sin and wanted to follow God's ways, but they kind of hit a wall or something. Why? Because they never had the Holy Spirit. In fact, they didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. And the question is, why didn't they have the Holy Spirit? Well, it's because their baptism happened before Christ's death and resurrection and the subsequent giving of the Holy Spirit to the church on Pentecost. There's a lot of history, I know, but follow with me here. So, these disciples in Ephesus were trying to let their actions control their hearts, baptism of repentance, instead of a new heart changing their actions, a baptism of salvation. There's a difference there. Anybody ever experienced something like that? You're letting your actions control your heart rather than letting your new heart in Christ control your actions. See, this is a very common experience, actually. 
So this is the primary place where this doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is found, okay? And, and now hear me, this resonates with me, and I think it resonates, if we're honest, with each one of us because we experience something similar to this, okay? We, we experience something similar in, in a feeling that we aren't getting anywhere with mere repentance, but we need something more to help us progress in our salvation. So, so this is where this passage is found. Okay, we find no other substantial support for this doctrine in the scriptures. Okay, there's some other places that are kind of, you can maybe twist them into support, but there's not substantial support. The only place where Paul, the apostle Paul, even mentions uh, this uh, or close to this idea is 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, he says this, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So this is as close that we have to Paul talking about a potential link between the spirit and baptism. But, but listen, Paul is talking about our conversion here. He's talking about being baptized into the church. He's talking about salvation. He's not talking about repentance here. He's saying that when we got saved, we were all brought into this family, into the body by the spirit. So that was a lot, I know. Here's our doctrine and belief. You are filled with the Holy Spirit at conversion. That's the, the traditional Protestant Christian doctrine. You are filled with the Holy Spirit at conversion. When a person goes from death to life, from sinner to saint, from, from darkness to light, they receive at that moment the Holy Spirit of God. You're filled with the Spirit. But then it still does raise the question when we experience what those guys in Acts 19 experienced, what are those things? Because I hear this all the time. There are those moments when you may have said this, quote, God became more real to me. Like you've had maybe those moments where it seems like after you've been converted, something happens and it might even cause you to wonder, hey, was I really actually saved before? Like, was I saved? Is this some sort of second experience, second blessing, second baptism? And this is tricky because, listen, some of you don't even know really when you got saved. It can be difficult, right? Some of you were raised uh, in the church, okay? And so you can't remember this specific day. Like, you don't know on your calendar when it was that you trusted in Jesus for salvation, well, then there are others of us in this room and you can point to the exact moment in time when you gave your life to Christ and you made that decision and everything changed. Okay, that, I, I didn't, I, I've told you my story. I didn't get saved until high school, okay? It was the summer before my junior year of high school. Um, I went on a mission trip with the youth group that I'd been hanging out at for a little while. Um, and I, I remember distinctly, I was sitting on a boat and I clearly remember praying God, I have made a mess of my life. Help me. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, in that moment fell on me. And listen, I have been unable to recover from that moment. I was dancing around belief for a while, but at that moment, it all stuck. And listen, I know it stuck because I freaked out. 
I mean, I freaked out. Ask my friends, my high school friends, ask them. I started bringing my Bible with me to school. I bring my Bible with me to school and they started calling me Bible boy. And I brought it because somebody said, if you bring your Bible to school and you set it on your desk, you're gonna have the opportunity to share your faith. And I was like, I don't know how to share my faith, but I'm bringing my Bible and I'm gonna be Bible boy. And I was pumped for it. I was unable to recover from that moment. Now, my wife, Marcy, her testimony is opposite of that. Not completely opposite, but like, but Marcy, now hear me, she is zealous for God, a ferocious follower of Christ, and she had no such moment like I had on that boat. She doesn't have that moment. She's just always kind of believed. I praise God for that. Praise God for that. She's just always kind of believed. Now, there was a moment when she didn't believe, but I I promise you, there was a moment she didn't believe, but she doesn't remember when that happened, so she's just kind of had the spirit for her life. I mean, goodness, that's my prayer for Harper, for my daughter, right? Um, Just so you know, Harper prayed the prayer to receive Christ last year on this exact date. The only reason why I know that is because I put it in my Google calendar as a reoccurring event so that I would remember, okay? And it just happened to fall today. Today, September 20th, is my daughter's spiritual birthday, okay? Now, the question is this. Does she actually have the the spirit? Is she actually saved? We'll see. The answer is we'll see. I don't know, but time will tell. Maybe she hasn't, but maybe she has. So theologically, what do we do with the moments when, quote, God becomes more real to us? Okay, if, if it's not a baptism of the Holy Spirit, a second filling of the Holy Spirit, a second blessing, then what are those moments? Well, now we get back to Ephesians. Thank you for following me on that excursus. But now we get back to Ephesians chapter 5. See, we believe that when you are filled by the Spirit, uh, saved by Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are filled. You receive the Holy Spirit at conversion. But we also believe that from that moment on, you can be filled. You are filled and you can be filled by the Holy Spirit over and over and over and over again. Now, it's not that the Spirit like leaves you. It's not that the Spirit like goes away and then you've got to get get refilled, okay? Because the Spirit never leaves you. If you are a Christian, the Spirit seals you and is with you forever. But you can be filled again and again and again. So, so the metaphor that I think is helpful and unhelpful is don't think of yourself as a glass of water or something like that, and it gets filled up with the Spirit. And once you're full, you're full. Like, don't think of the glass metaphor. Think of yourself like a balloon. A balloon is a much help, more helpful illustration here. When is a balloon filled? when there's air in it. It's full when there's air in it. But can a balloon still be filled? You bet it can. You bet it can. You can fill it with another breath or two breaths or three breaths. And if it pops, then the metaphor falls apart. But, um, <laughs> but think of yourself like that. You are filled and you can be filled. 
So while we do not believe in a second baptism that should be sought, we do believe that there are fillings of the Holy Spirit that should be sought, and I would even add daily, that should be sought daily. I'll show it to you, okay? Back to Ephesians chapter five. Let's read verse 18 once, more, once again. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So um, being filled with the Spirit is, I think, the best way to explain those second experiences that we still experience today. When something changes in you and you become more serious about your faith, or like you just feel Jesus more intimately, or, you, or it becomes real to you in a new way, I think those are fillings of the Holy Spirit. And, and that we experience not just a second time, but maybe a third time, or a fourth time, or a fifth time, or a twentieth time. And it's also, hear me, why we do not rebaptize you every time you feel one of those experiences. You only need one baptism. You need to be baptized once for salvation. But you can be filled with the Spirit without those things. Now, Paul, when he says be filled, uh, he is using, if you want to write this down, a present tense imperative verb. Okay? All the English teachers gave a shout of praise. Okay? Present tense imperative verb. And so that means it could be more explicitly translated, but they, you'll, you'll understand why they didn't translate it this way because it's clunky, but it would be more explicitly translated this. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That, that this text is implying that this is something that is on repeat. This should be repeated and repeatedly happening to us as Christians. You are filled and you can be filled. So the question is, okay, so how does this happen? How do these fillings happen? Well, Paul doesn't leave us in the lurch here. He gives us what I think are four ways in this text. There are more, but he gives us four. And I want you to think about these four things as actions that will help us get positioned to be filled by the Spirit. Okay? These, these, these four things that he's going to mention, they don't guarantee you being filled. Okay? But they put you in the place where filling can occur so that when the Spirit does move, you can get filled. So Matt Chandler calls these things, uh, he calls it getting ourselves under the faucet. Getting ourselves under the faucet. These things don't, they, they don't promise to turn the faucet on. It just puts us under the faucet, positions us under the faucet so that if God in his mercy would turn it on, you're gonna get soaked. That's what these things are. Here we go, verse 19. So he says, be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So these four things, think of them as four faucets to get under. The first one, he says, to address. We address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Addressing one another. Sometimes this will translate speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that we just kind of do church like a musical, right? That's not what happens, okay? It's not like we Hamilton one another, 
right? Like a rap gang or something happens out in the hallway, all right? It's like, good morning, Pastor Chris. It's like, no, we're not doing that, okay? It's not Fathom the Musical. That's not what's going on in this text. What this is, actually, this speaking or, or, uh, or um, uh, addressing one another is the horizontal d- dimension that happens when we gather formally to sing. It's a horizontal thing that happens when we do corporate worship. So, so this means as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we are actually addressing one another. Yes, we are worshiping God. We'll get to that one next. But we are also addressing one another. We are teaching and admonishing one another in a way when we sing. And I just want to point out that Paul does not say, hey, you know how you should speak to one another and address one another? You should address one another in sermons and Bible studies and teachings. He doesn't say that, right? This doesn't bode well for my career. This verse does not bode well for my occupation, okay? Paul, actually in other places, seems to downplay the formal gift of preaching. He seems to downplay this thing. It's almost like he he literally says, hey, when I came to you, I didn't come with wise and persuasive words. It's almost almost like Paul, like if if he was wise and persuasive, he'd be like, dang it, I was wise and persuasive. I shouldn't do that. He doesn't, he doesn't lift up the gift of preaching here as the way that we get filled communally. What he's saying here is, hey, as you gather as a church and sing, you sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As you sing, you're actually, you're singing to God, but you're singing to one another. You're addressing one another. And so we do so. Like as churches, we gather and we sing, and during that time, other members of the church are being filled with the Spirit. I always say this, um, but but you know, nobody's humming my sermons on the way to the car after church. You will quickly forget what I have to say, but listen, you're humming theology when you're leaving these places. And how many of you have been reading the Psalms and read a Psalm and all of a sudden that hymn that you sang as a child or that song that you sang in church is like, wait a second, this is scripture? Tricking you, right? (laughs) That's what we sing because it gets down into your heart. So this is the first faucet we get under. We address one another in song. Second one is singing. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And now this is closely associated, okay? Closely associated with the first one, but this is the vertical aspect of worship, of singing, okay? The horizontal aspect is first, but hear me, there is this vertical thing that as we sing, as we make melody to the Lord, there's a joy that fills and explodes out of the heart when we sing to the Lord. There is. You feel it when you sing differently than when you just speak. Now, listen, that can look a thousand different ways. That can look a thousand different ways. How one person shows joy in worship can look totally different from how another person shows joy in worship. And we get in trouble when we start to really programatize this. It's got to look this way. Listen, seriously, I know guys who explode with joy in worship and they're like, "Mm," they look like this. Mm, I'm just so happy right now. Mm. I do. I know guys who are just that way, okay? 
I know guys like that. In fact, I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said that there's a joy that brings about seriousness. It happens, y'all. Depending on your temperament and your personality and where your head and your heart are, but but that's one way to have joy in worship. And listen, I then know guys who are the complete opposite. They got to have their hands up, they got to be clapping, they got to shout, they got to dance, they got to move. And both are experiences of worship and joy. Okay, there's just something though about singing. The reason why we sing, you ever wonder why we sing as Christians? This is the reason why. There's just something about singing that elevates more than words or prose can. There's something about singing from the heart to the Lord. And and I'll just say this, that's why it is often so heartbreaking that some of you show up after we sing in the mornings. Like after, or, or listen, maybe you duck out of here at the back half of the service because you want to get to lunch quicker than everybody else. And I'm just saying, you're not offending me. You're here for my part. Which I just said was less important. But I'm just saying, you, you are here to get yourself under the faucet. And when you remove yourself from that, you're missing out. You're missing out on one of the ways that Paul says you should interact with the living God. You should experience the living God, that you should actually get yourself in the position to be filled by the Spirit. So that's faucet number two. Faucet number three, thanking. Thanking. The text says that we, give, that we are giving thanks always and for everything. This is a nice, tidy verse to have this week with the Thanksgiving holiday coming up. We didn't plan that, so that's a little Holy Spirit you know, sprinkle for us right there, okay? Um, but thanking God. This is so important, y'all. Prayer is not just the list of things that you're asking from God. Prayer is very often the list of things that God has already provided for you that you're thankful for. It's gratitude. It's thankfulness. It's thanksgiving. So um, I'll illustrate like this. We, Marcy and I lived with my in-laws for six months while we renovated our home. Okay, a few years ago we did this, uh, which I would not recommend uh, to anybody. Even if you love your in-laws like I love my in-laws, like we do, okay? We love these guys, uh, but leave and cleave, baby, all right? (laughs) Get out of there, all right? Um, But we lived there for six months, okay? We lived there for six months, and I would, uh, I'm an early riser, I would get up early, and uh, my mother-in-law, Mary, would be up early with me, okay? Uh, And I guess Marcy got more of Royce in her because those two don't get up until the sun is way up, all right? Um, But... Mary would faithfully, every single morning, I'd be up, she'd be up, every single morning, I would watch her drink her coffee early in the morning, first thing first, get the coffee, right? And then I'd watch her spend time in God's word, reading the scriptures, and then I'd watch her write in a spiral-bound notebook. And I asked her, what is that notebook? And she said, this is my thankful journal. This is my thankful journal. And so Mary Robinson has for hundreds and hundreds of days, year upon year upon year, every single day written down her thanksgiving prayers to God. Every single day. You, you think that's not bearing fruit in her life? You think that's not changed this woman for the better? 
younger gals in here, this is why you need to be involved in women's ministry at Fathom. I'm serious. Like, so you can learn from women with decades of this stuff in their, under their belt. So thank, thanking. I started doing the same thing. I'm not at a couple hundred days yet, but thanking. And then the last faucet. The last faucet is submitting. Submitting to one another. Ooh, this one's the good one, okay? Submitting to one another. Now, this last section, this last verse, is actually a springboard onto the next bunch of verses, which we can't cover today. We will have to cover next week. But Paul says that we submit in three primary relationships here. We submit in the marriage relationship. We submit in our our parent-to-child relationship. And we submit in our workplace, in our boss-to-employee relationship as a way by which the Spirit fills us, okay? So Paul will launch into mutual submission as a way we are filled. We're gonna cover all of that next week, but, but I just say this. God offers us divinely ordered relationships to be marked by submission. And this is another faucet under which we can be filled. That's, that's all I have time to say on that one today. So those are the four things, okay? Addressing, singing, thanking, and submitting. And did you notice that two of them are on the horizontal plane and two of them are on the vertical plane? Two of the ways that God fills us, addressing one another, submitting to one another, that's, that's horizontal. And then the other two, singing praises to God, thanking, giving thanks to God, those are vertical things. Both are how he fills us with the spirit. So listen, y'all, this is what we ought to desire as Christians. If you're a Christian in here, this is what you ought to desire Like, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit again and again and again. I I want more air in my balloon. I want him to fill me more. I want another breath in me. So I got to try and line myself up to get underneath those faucets. You are filled and you can be filled. So let's close this up. Let's close it up like this. For some of you, for some of you, listen, you, you may not actually believe. Some of you may not have surrendered your life to Jesus. Some of you may not have been baptized with a baptism of salvation. You've not, you've not received Christ. And I would just say the invitation for you today is to believe. It's to surrender. It's to bow the knee to Christ, to be, and and listen, you can be filled to the full with his Holy Spirit today. That's the offer on the table every Sunday. Believe on Christ and be filled with the Spirit. So listen, if if you want to talk about that, if you want to be prayed over, if you want to just like, I'm not sure what this means, we'll be in the back of the room after this. Like, come talk with us, come chat with us. We'll pray with you, we'll explain things to you. But some of you need to be filled. And then for those of us who do believe, we need to be filled. And here's how I want to apply it to those who do believe. Um, Here's how I think we need to grow, both individually and then as a whole congregation. 
I think when we come together on weekends, on Sundays together, we need to be better prepared to be filled. I think we need to be more prepared. Because let me just tell you what happens when we gather based on my experience and my understanding of the text. Okay, here's just a few things I personally know. When we gather, God saves people. You know how crazy that is? People come into our doors and they are not believers in the gospel. They haven't experienced the life change that Christ brings and God meets them in this place and saves them. Some, listen, some of you, that happened to you here. This isn't your new church. This is your first church. Why aren't we more excited about that? Why aren't we, why aren't we more anticipating God to do that in our midst? This is what he does. His bride, the church, is the aroma that attracts the unbeliever. He does that in here. God heals people in this room. God exposes sin in this room. God stirs up our affections for him in this room. God changes lives in this room. He doesn't only do it here, but he certainly does. He certainly does. And he does it when we come together and we make much of him. Why is there so little anticipation about getting in here? Why isn't there this ongoing anticipation for our, through our week for what God might do when we gather? You'd think we'd be in a rush to get in here. You'd think we'd be excited to be here. It wouldn't be begrudging submission to show up to church. We'd be excited trying to find a good seat, all right, just to see what he might do to get ourselves and everyone around us under that faucet in hopes that he might just turn on the flow. You're filled and you can be filled. This is not a practice in the ordinary, y'all. God does crazy things when his people gather together. I pray, my prayer for us, I pray that our anticipation might be, might be built for him to show up in mightier and mightier ways. Don't get drunk with wine. That junk will not satisfy you. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. My hope is we'd get better at positioning ourselves under the faucet with the expectation that he would turn it on. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you. This is a, a weird teaching in some ways because it deals with doctrines that maybe we're not familiar with or maybe we're vaguely familiar with or maybe we, uh, we, we, we've been experienced and have questions about. But beyond that, Lord, I think it, it, it's also a passage that deals with something that is true about each one of us. How do we explain the movements that you do in our life as we follow you? It's not we get saved and then it's just up and to the right. But there's this, in our progressive sanctification, there are these jumps, there are these moments, there are these experiences, and how we explain those goes back to how we understand how you work, how you work in saving us and how you work in sanctifying us. And so God, I pray today for my brothers and sisters that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit again. Those of us who have been filled, we're like that balloon. And Lord, I pray you just add a little air to us today. Fill us up a little bit more today. 
whether it's through addressing one another, singing with one another, being thankful today. Lord, all the different things that we do, we do them in hopes that, that you'd turn on that faucet, that Holy Spirit, you'd fall on us in a fresh way. And Lord, we ask for you to do that. Not because we don't have you, but because we want more of you. But Father, there are probably some in here who have not been filled. There are probably some in here who, who have yet to bow the knee to you. I was in church for three years just kind of feeling things out before you fell on my heart on that boat. And so I'm thinking there's maybe somebody in here today and, and, and God, you're, you're calling them. You're wooing to them. Holy Spirit, you're, you're whispering in their ear right now. God, I pray you, you give them courage to, to welcome you in, to bow the knee, to surrender their life to you, and then fill them with your spirit. They may not even feel different, but they are. So God, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray to you. We ask you to fill us now. For our good, for our sake, Lord, that we would we would grow and go deeper with you, but also for your glory, that the church might put on display to the world the manifold wisdom of God. Father, we love you. We bless you today. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen.